Welcome to History Class After Hours. I'm Joseph Barra, and today, once again, joining me is Ryan. Hey, Mr. Barra. Happy Friday. Yes. Happy Friday. It's a good day. It's Friday. All right. Today we are going to learn about a story from World War I. Um, it's a group of men that are going to become known as the Lost Battalion. All right, so a little bit of a pre precursor. World War I breaks out in 1914. Basically, you have the Central Powers versus the Triple Entente, which will then become the Allies. So you have Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Turkey against France, Russia, and England. Yes. All right. United States just sitting back and not doing much. At the time, we really didn't have an army. Yeah. Our, our government didn't, seem it didn't deem mm -hmm. it necessary for us to spend a lot of money on a military because we were just isolated from everybody else. So by the time World War I breaks out, we're not really ready to fight. No one is really ready to fight, willing to fight. Um, eventually, the United States is going to get dragged into the war. Several things. Zimmerman Note, mm -hmm. which is where the German ambassador asked Mexico to invade the United States. The sinking of U.S. ships. The Lusitania passenger ship that gets sunk. All that stuff just kind of finally compounds into the United States declaring war in 1917. United States won't send troops or have troops ready to fight until 1918. And once again, one of those big reasons is because we just don't really have an army at that point. So the way the army is going to be broken down is um, they break the army down into divisions. The first 30 divisions are going to be regulars. Okay. Uh, it's like the next 20 to 30 are going to be reservists. And then following that, once you get 75 and up, that's when you're going to get what they call the National Army. Okay. And the National Army is made up of draftees. Got it. All right. So the story we're going to tell about today, or talk about today, is about one of those national units. Okay. Or units from the National Army. So we're talking about draftees here. Okay. So United States starts getting involved in the war, 1918 couple of fights here or there, but the United States still hasn't really had an action where it's truly the U.S. doing their own thing. All right, this is going to, the first time this happens is going to be called the Meuse-Argonne Campaign. All right, so previously the United States have been involved with what's called the St. Mihiel Offensive, um, and what's going to end up happening is they're going to be able to stop a German advance that was going on um, for a couple months. And so at this point, the Allies are going to try to go on the offensive. All right. So the plan was for the American Expeditionary Force, all right, was going to attack the Meuse-Argonne region, which was basically going to be, if you know military terms, it's like on the right flank of the Allies or the left flank of the Germans. So it's like the far left of their line. Uh, the British would attack the north, while the French would support both the English and Americans by attacking the center. The goal was basically to attack the entire German army, which would prevent them from shifting troops from one place to another. Okay. All right. And all in all, 220 divisions are going to be in this attack, 43 of which are going to be American. All right. So the U.S. objective is to cap capture a rail line about 30 miles from where they were jumping off. Uh, the army was supposed to also flank the Germans along the... Um, 
I'm going to butcher this name, Eisney River. Well, the French hit them from their front. All right, the U.S. front was going to be about 20 miles wide, and it's sandwiched between the Meuse River on the right and the Aragon Forest on the left. Aragon Forest itself is pretty nasty terrain. Uh, throughout all the wars that have happened in Europe's history, most armies tried to avoid it at all costs. It's rocky, it's hilly, it's swampy in areas, it's dense woods. Some parts you can't even see two feet in front of you because there's so much undergrowth and underbrush. So ideally, it's not the best place to try to fight. Okay. Germans had also had four years to basically build up defenses in the area. Yeah. Um, and they're going to take advantage of that terrain. They had high ground um, on both flanks, so they were able to see the field very well. Um, they had a defensive system, which was 15 miles deep with multiple lines of fortifications, and German fortifications were extremely strong. They really understood how to use reinforced concrete, so much so that a lot of those things are still in the Argonne Forest today, and they look like just, they did, just like they did in 1918. Wow. They even had swimming pools for the men to relax in back of the lines. So what you did see is, though, a lot of troops that were worn out, they typically were sent to the Aragon to kind of relax and get uh, okay. re recuperate, things like that. So on uh, September 26th, the first attacks rolled out after a three-hour artillery barrage. Uh, the right flank um, is going to easily um, move forward, primarily because they don't have that Aragon, that, that, that forest to deal with. The center would be slowed by about a day of reaching their objective. The real problem, though, is going to occur on that left flank, and those are the guys that are basically the ones in charge of going right through the forest. And this is going to be Robert Alexander's 77th Division. So with the, the 77 means that they are a uh, conscription unit. Got it. So they were all draftees. All right, so the 7th, 77th Infantry Division was created out of New York City. Very diverse group of men. You had 42 different languages spoken throughout it. So it's oh, like, it's a, it's a lot. A lot, yeah. It's a division of immigrants for the most part. Um, they get their first combat in a place called Baccarat. Um, and at this point, the Germans had gotten really good at infiltrating U.S. lines. So they knew that the 77th was coming in, and they actually gave them welcome signs, saying like, oh, we're going to give you hell now. Hi. Mm. Wow. All right. Um, they would then move to a place called the Valley of Basile, which is that's where they actually learn to dig in. Also, they learn even harsher lessons of German infiltration tactics. Um, basically, this idea that if you're sleeping in a foxhole, you need three guys sleeping in one at the same time. One guy is always awake watching the other two because the Germans had gotten so good at infiltrating that they were able to go inside pockets, and if you were sleeping two guys to a foxhole, one of them may actually be a German and you would not know it. Wow. All right. So the 77th would begin to fall apart as the regiments worked independently of each other. Alexander would be put in charge to fix the problems. All right, so this leads to the lost battalion. Oh, going back to infiltration too, another thing is the Germans are, it's a lot easier for them to blend in the 77th. Why? Why do you think that is? It's because they're all immigrants. Because they're all immigrants. Yeah, everybody has uh, an accent when they speak, so it's easy for the Germans to just go in there. There's actually accounts of them going across lines and eating 
U.S. food and then going back to the German lines. All right, so the Lost Battalion, 77th was put on the left flank of the American Army in order to go through the Aragon Forest. Once again, thick, wooded, swampy area. The French Army was supposed to be on their left and the 28th Infantry Division on their right. So one of the um, infantry regiments of the 77th Division is going to be the 308th. It's going to be commanded by a guy whose name is Charles Whitlesey. All right. And that's really who we're going to be focusing on here. So as the attack begins, things fall apart quickly. Uh, they start to begin moving away from the regiment on their left, and there's going to be a gap in the middle. Um, eventually, the 308, so that's Whitlesey's regiment, is going to be cut off from the rest of the army and surrounded. This is going to be called the small pocket. Whitlesey is going to send out three men to try and get to the rear to tell um, others of their situation. Arthur McKay, John Monson, and Jack Hershkowitz will do so, and they'll all receive the Distinguished Service Cross for their actions. By October 1st, the rest of the army finally caught up with the 308th, um, and at that point, they are told to resume the attack. Um, and they're told to go in a direction of what's called the Ravine de Argan. Basically, there's like a power station there, okay. and, they're, and they're told to basically take that. Got it. So the 308th was told to head through the ravine while other forces would swing around their flanks. And they are told, attack without regarding your flanks. So in, in military terms, your flanks are the ends of your army. Mm -hmm. All right, And those are the weakest points of your army. Because if a... If a if the enemy gets on your flank, they're able to fire right down your down row of men, and you can't really do much about that. So what he's saying is just charge ahead. and <clears throat> Yeah, don't worry about the side. people on your left. Don't people worry about the people on the right. Just, just go forward. forward. Just go forward. Got All it. right. Well, the 308th once again advanced too far, and this time be cut off in a place called the Pocket. They're going to take refuge on a hillside and wait for the rest of the army. So you had 700 men cramped into an area of about 300 by 100 yards. They had nine machine guns in total with them, and they were going to put seven on their left and two on the right. And men at this point were already suffering physical ailments. Uh, they were suffering from lack of food, the cold weather, and a lot of them had gas poisoning. And when you had gas poisoning, your, your joints would hurt, you'd have diarrhea, uh, nauseous, all that stuff. Okay. So for so not not very fun. No, it's not it's not a good situation. Yeah. So for the next five days, Germans are going to launch assault after assault after assault to try to dislodge the Americans because they believe that if they destroy the 308, it's going to destroy American morale. Um, there's also that belief because this is um, part of the National Army, part of uh, a unit of draftees, that if they destroy that unit. The, the whole draft D program will be seen as a failure. And it's going to really hurt the American war effort. Okay. All right. So the 308th is going to hold their ground, but take heavy casualties. They lose 60% of their men within the first 48 hours. Wow. Meanwhile, the Americans were throwing out all of the reserves to try to get to the pocket and save the 308th. The American public is quickly going to learn of their situation as newspapers start reporting. And they are going to get the moniker, the Lost Battalion. Even though they weren't a battalion, they were a regiment, but Lost Battalion sounded better. It's true. So on October 4th, 308th is going to call for artillery support to take out some trench mortars at their rear. Um, suffering from the lack of sleep, the poisoning, lack of food, all that stuff, the orders are messed up by the artillery officer. He transposes two numbers. 
Um, and so what happens is the 308th is going to begin taking on friendly fire, and it, it decimates their line. It's going to take out even more of their men. Private Omer Richards will send the passenger pigeon. All right, so you had telephone lines at this point, and you were able to communicate, but basically you had to have a guy carry a cable from the front front line yeah. to the back, mm -hmm. and then hope that cable doesn't get severed. Yeah. So they had that, but it got severed pretty quickly. All right, so they had to rely on passenger pigeons. Basically, passenger pigeon, you put a little note on their, their ankle, you throw them up in the air, and they go fly to a, a, a oh. coop somewhere, and someone yeah. grabs and reads the message. So he has one pigeon left. Um, he actually has two. He goes in to grab one and it flies away. So he's got oh. one pigeon left. Her name is Shirami. Um And on the note, Whitless Sea is going to write a message. We are along the road. Our own artillery is dropping shell on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. Shirami gets thrown up in the air. As soon as Sheremy gets thrown up in the air, an artillery shell goes off. Sheremy drops. Oh, jeez. They're like, oh, no. Sheremy gets back up. Oh. Sheremy starts flying. Okay. And a German is going to shoot Sheremy. Oh. Sheremy drops again. Man. Eventually, Sheremy gets up again and flies. Okay. About 30 minutes back to where the line is. Um, <clears throat> Sheremy is going to have a bullet go through her breast. She's also going to lose a leg. Wow. Um, we talked about Jeremy in a previous episode. Um, but anyway, um, it's debated if Jeremy saved the day or if they had already figured out what was going on. But the, yeah. the veterans of the 308 will say Jeremy saved them. And if you yep. go to the Smithsonian Institute, Jeremy is stuffed and on display there. Without a leg? Without a leg, yep. and, a, and a wound in the chest? Yes, at the Smithsonian. You can see nice. her. She lived for like another like year after uh, all that. One tough bird. Eventful story you can get from a pigeon. Yeah, I mean that's that's gets down, get back up, gets back up again. Yeah. Uh, so there's going to be a couple of medics that are trying their hardest to save the guys that are wounded. Uh, Jack Gary had set up lean-tos for the wounded uh, when friendly fire scored a direct hit on the lean-tos, killing most of those people that were wounded. He himself is going to be buried alive. All he has is a hand and a foot sticking out of the ground. He thinks I'm done for, but a terrier that he had adopted earlier in the war and brought with him everywhere digs him out and he's able to get out that way nice um and then you also have this issue where they're running out of water and there's a there's a creek that goes along the ravine but the the germans have snipers posted all along that creek so anybody that tries to get water gets shot okay. so they are running extremely low on resources so knowing the 308 was running low on supplies allied planes start to drop them However, most of the time they're off target and they'll land in the hands of the Germans. And then the Germans let the Lost Battalion know, like, they'll just start yelling at them. We're eating your chocolate. We're drinking your coffee. Ha ha. All right. So two guys, um, Gottler and Bleckley, have an idea where the Lost Battalion was. Their idea is they are going to fly low in their paper airplanes. That's what planes were back then. They were made out of wood and paper and they flew about 70 miles an hour but fly low and draw to help determine where they weren't, all right? So basically, if they were drawing fire, they knew that's not where the Lost Battalion was because the Lost Battalion wouldn't find and hit them. Uh, they're gonna find their location, but Guttler is gonna take a bullet to the head and Bleckley is going to die while trying to land the plane. Um, 
basically what happens is Gettler gets shot, and when he gets shot, he falls on the flight stick, and it causes the plane to basically wow. crash. And Bleckley is going to try to pull it out. The plane's going to crash. He actually survives long enough to go to the, the hospital, but he's going to die there. Both will receive the Medal of Honor. Okay. All right. Then you get a couple of guys that are called the machine gun hunters. One is Archie Peck, who single-handedly is going to take out three machine gun nests. Um, he is going to be um, awarded the Medal of Honor. And his citation says, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty in action with the enemy in the Argonne Forest, France, on October 6, 1918, while engaged with two other soldiers on patrol, Private Peck and his comrades were subjected to the direct fire of an enemy machine gun at which both of his companions were wounded. Returning to his company, he obtained another soldier to accompany him to assist in bringing in the wounded men. His assistant was killed in the exploit, but he continued twice returning safely, bringing in both men, being under terrific machine gun fire during the entire journey. Um, another guy, his name is Kaufman. He is going to charge a machine gun physician. He jumps into a hole and beats up the Germans with his hands. He was a, wow. former, he was a former gold glove boxing champion. Oh. And he's going to be shot in the shoulder during all this. And then, perfect insult, he makes them carry their own machine gun back to American lines as prisoners. That's great. Yes. That's, yeah. Um, he also took out a, a patrol for the purpose of attacking an enemy machine gun, which had, he took out a patrol for the purpose of attacking an enemy machine gun. Uh, before reaching the gun, he became separated from his patrol, and a machine gun bullet shattered his right arm. Without hesitation, he advanced on the gun alone, throwing grenades with his left hand and charging with an empty pistol. He took one prisoner and scattered the crew, bringing the gun and prisoner back to the first aid station. You also have a guy who's going to be called the messenger. His name is Abraham Krotoshinsky. Um, he's going to crawl back 10 miles, not 10 miles, a mile, to friendly lines, and it's going to take him 10 hours. Oh, wow. And he's got Germans walking all around him. At one point, a German's actually going to step on his hand and not know it because oh. he's just laying in the mud. Lieutenant James Leake, um, he's unique to the 77th because he's actually from Texas. He's going to get wounded, captured, and interrogated. But Leake is important to the story because he's able to convince the Germans that the 308th is larger and better supplied than they actually are. The story is, like, he's getting interrogated, and the Germans offer him food, and he's like, I'm not hungry. I had a big lunch, and, like, this stuff. And he's like, he convinces the Germans nice. that, like, the 308 does not go and give up. He calls them a bunch of, like, gangsters. He's like, you're not going to be. So it's like they're a force to be reckoned with? Yeah. yeah. So the Germans had had enough, and high command had begun ordering troops out of the Argonne. They were going to make one final push, this time using stormtroopers. Stormtroopers were like their, their special ops during World War One. They had really kind of fine-tuned this idea of small units going across open space. And they were also going to bring in flamethrowers, which were relatively new. Okay. All right. They're going to offer the 308th a chance to surrender. Whitlessy and one of his officers, McMultry, will read the note and show it to Holderman, who's another officer. The three officers smiled at each other, and McMurtry said, They're begging us to quit. They're more worried than we are. The Germans attacked, and once again, they're going to be driven back. The 308th was out of ammo, short on men. They could hear the Germans forming on their flanks again. However, it wasn't the Germans. It was actually the 307th breaking through to free them. All right. There's going to be three other guys that will win the Medal of Honor for the actions. 
Uh, George McMurtry, just talked about him. He was a captain in 308. He's going to take shrapnel to the knee early in the fight. He's then going to take a massive piece of shrapnel in the shoulder later, which would remain protruding from his shoulder for the rest of the battle. So he's just got this big chunk of jaggedy metal wow. going through his shoulder, and th there's nothing they can do. Yeah. Like. But he's going to continue to help move the wounded and lead his men in multiple defenses of German attacks. Like I said, he is going to win the Medal of Honor for his actions. Other guy is Nelson Holderman. He's a professional fighter, and Holderman's company is actually not even part of um, the 308th. They just kind of wander into the area before they're cut off. He's going to be wounded several times during the fighting. He had a massive piece of shrapnel in his pelvis. And a bandage was the only thing holding his wrist onto his arm. Oh, wow. He's going to end the battle with five wounds. As the Germans make their final push, he's going to take two broken rifles and use them as a crutch under his arm while he fires his Colt 45 at the last German assault. He's also going to win the Medal of Honor for his actions. So the aftermath of all this, of 700 soldiers that walked into the pocket, only 194 were able to walk out. So you're looking at a 72% casualty rate. Oh, jeez. The 307th said as they entered that they could smell the 368th from half a mile away. And they would say they never saw such devastation, and many would walk away vomiting from what, what was going on. All in all, there's going to be seven Medal of Honor winners from the battle. The last guy we haven't talked about, Charles Whitlesey, who was the, um, in charge of them. He's going to be the first American to receive the Medal of Honor during World War I. But it's going to be something he struggles with all his life. Uh, he's going to suffer from PTSD. Um, he kind of suffers from what's called survivor's remorse, like why did I survive while all these other guys died under my command. Yeah. Also, he's going to suffer from tuberculosis caused by a gas attack. Wow. Um, so kind of realizing that his health was failing, he didn't have much longer, he is going to go to Cuba in 1921, and while he's on the boat, he's going to write a letter and jump overboard. Oh, wow. But a lot of his stuff is still, um, I think a unit uh, college has a lot of his possessions and stuff, like even the jacket he wore in the pocket, his notebook, all that stuff. So that is the story of the Lost Battalion. So if you were alive from like 1920 to 1940, prior to World War II, just about everybody in the United States knew this story. But it's kind of been forgotten because World War II, World War II. now like overshadows World War I. Yeah. But hope you enjoyed it. Join us next week. Thank you for tuning in to History Class After Hours, the show where we talk about the things your history teachers didn't have time to teach you. If you wanted to stay updated on upcoming events for the History Club, please visit www.starsmillhistoryc.wixsite.com forward slash 2020. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and subscribe to our channel on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Be on the lookout for new episodes, and we'll be posting every week. Until next time, stay curious.